You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is, it is to be in your presence. Through the gracious blood of Jesus Christ, Lord, we come before you and we, we seek you out and we long for you, Lord. And as we dig into your word, I pray that your spirit would write it on our hearts that you would affect us deeply, that you would change us, that you would mold us to be the church that you've called us to be. We give you all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's so good to see you all here today, uh, especially because it's been a couple of weeks since I've actually been here on a Sunday morning. I was out of town last Sunday for a family thing that we had to do, and the Sunday before that I was given the honor an opportunity to speak at the Tab Church on the north side. So that was a great opportunity and lots of fun. They have a good church over there. And uh, on that end, I heard good things about the services I missed. Uh, Walter, Pastor Walter spoke last week, and then Compassion was in. Uh, so I'm sad I missed those, but uh, I'm glad that you guys all had a good time without me. Um, mostly, but anyways, you know, it just feels really good to be back. It's, it's, like, it's like coming home. And um, mostly because last weekend I was in North Battleford. And if you're wondering, where's North Battleford? That's my point. Um, And if you know where it is, well, then you know what I'm talking about. It's basically in the middle of nowhere. Um, And besides, you know, being in the middle of nowhere or not, uh, we all know that when you're away from home, it it just doesn't feel right, does it? You just don't feel like yourself. You just don't feel like you belong. You don't really feel like you're, you're comfortable. Like even when, we, and when you go on holidays, you go to someplace fantastic and it's awesome and, and you're feeling good. But then eventually you still get that longing or that desire to go home, right? We get homesick. We feel that pull to go back where, where we belong, where we can be ourselves, to be where it's comfortable, to sleep in our own beds, to be with our family, our friends, our culture, our people. And in a similar way, as Christians living in this broken world and in the midst of a secular society, we're filled with this kind of yearning or longing for home as well, aren't we? Especially these days, but for me anyways... Maybe some of you can relate. As we live in the world, there's an ever-increasing sense that we're not of it. Or at least that this home isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to look. And so we're homesick. We're living in a, in a culture even which increasingly and ever-boldly pressures us to, to compromise or conform our faith so we look like them. And if we don't, we're, you know, demonized on social media or bigoted in society, uh, labeled as, as uncritically stupid or ignorant or old-fashioned or whatever, whatever the word they want to use. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not like we're um, being physically persecuted or that we, we have it as rough as other Christians in the world. We're not helpless victims. We still have rights in our country and all that kind of stuff. But still, my point is that it feels less and less like we're at home. Mark Sayers, he's a theologian and pastor who's got a really sense of the culture going on right now. He writes this. He says, A growing sense of worry haunts the Western church. The rise of a post-Christian society, alongside declining numbers of those who practice biblical faith, combined with a corresponding weakening of Christian influence, has created an anxious 
mood. This mood can range from a sense of defeat to a feeling of deep vulnerability to a deep desire to retreat into a religious refuge. So for many Christians today, Christians who are dedicated to living their lives for Jesus, it's getting to the point where we're starting to feel like a minority in a sense, like strangers and exiles in our own country, like we don't fit, like, like we've become the odd ones out. And in some spaces, like we're not even welcome. And so we long for our heavenly home. But this is simply the reality of things anyways, even if you don't feel that tension from society and you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, even the authors of the New Testament refer to followers of Jesus as strangers and exiles. This is intentional imagery that they draw from the Old Testament. Jesus himself even uses exilic language when he declares to Pilate that, that his kingdom is not of this world. And on that note, Tim Chester and, and Steve Timmis write, Christians are like immigrants, foreigners, temporary residents, refugees. We do not belong. We do not have the rights of citizens. We are outsiders. We are living on the edge of the culture. So again, as citizens of God's kingdom, we long or we should long for our true home, for the new creation, the restoration of heaven and earth where there'll be no more struggle or pain or tears or sorrow or evil. As it says in Romans 8, which Blair read at the beginning of our service this morning, we groan for this future hope with all of creation. We yearn for everything to be redeemed, for freedom, for resurrection life with Jesus in the presence of God. Philippians 3, 20, 21, 20 to 21 says it like this. says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So again, even while we're not literal exiles or political refugees or anything like that, but spiritually, culturally, and even eternally speaking, we are. Because through Christ, we're citizens of the kingdom of God. That's our home. And I think it's just becoming more and more apparent to us these days as our culture moves farther away from Christian values, just like it was for the disciples and the early church. And because of that, I'd say it's becoming easier and easier for us to relate to the words of Psalm 137, verse 4, which asks in lament during a time of exile, how can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? How do we worship God in the midst of this? How do we sing a song when people are telling us not to? In other words, how do, we, how do we remain faithfully resilient to God in this day and age? How do we both thrive as spiritual exiles and at the same time love our neighbors all without compromising our faith? Especially when we're, we're, we're being pushed out into the margins of culture and society. How do we as the church, as citizens of God's kingdom, live in the world but not of it as we wait for the day our home is truly restored? At times... It might seem hopeless. But as we start our new series through Daniel this morning, what we'll discover and what I hope we'll learn is that being exiles in a strange land isn't as bleak as it seems. That's not a negative name. That's not a negative thing, exiles. It's not as bleak as it seems, but that it's actually 
quite hopeful. That it's actually an opportunity. That this is actually God's design and plan for us as the church. And that it's actually during seasons of trial and exile where we find there's also a deep hope of renewal, of resurrection, of revival. And this is why our series through the book of Daniel is aptly titled, Exiles. As many of us know, the story of Daniel is about him and his three friends as they're forcefully removed from their homes in Jerusalem, along with thousands of their people. And then they're taken into captivity to live as political exiles in the foreign city and empire of Babylon. And they have it worse than us. Way worse than us. They're forced from their homes. Imagine their longing to go back home. But yet they display for us what it looks like to remain faithful to God's word and to trust in God's will as exiles in a strange land. And so, so our hope is that as we read through this captivating, and let's be honest, an often incredibly confusing book, I won't have all the answers, um, but as we read through it, I hope that we'll be able to relate and apply it to our own faith and our own lives as well. That as we read about Daniel and his friends' faithful obedience in the midst of colonial oppression and how God uses it for good, we'll be reminded of Jesus' Jesus's perfect faithfulness under colonial oppression, and then we'll also be encouraged to remain steadfast in our own lives. That as we read about the sovereign hand of God displayed throughout the story, even in the midst of trials, we'll become more hopeful and understand that God is not absent, that God is not surprised, but that God is working out his perfect will. That we'll learn, like Daniel, that when Babylon stretches out its hand of temptation and, and pressures us to conform and compromise, we'll be able to resist and instead remain resilient and faithful in who we are in Christ, even as we work out and, and seek out justice and the good of the world around us. That as we read and learn about the rise and fall of empires which repeatedly set themselves up against God, we'll be reminded how horrifyingly and terribly wrong it goes every single time. And on that end, hopefully we'll grow in thankfulness and confidence that we're citizens of a kingdom and, and heirs to an eternal king that will never fall. That as we begin to understand the prophetic themes of renewal and resurrection through Daniel, we'll continue to reorient our trust in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, the Son of Man, who, as we'll learn, is, is the fulfillment of Daniel's visions, who alone paid for our freedom at the cross and has promised to come again and take us home. Ultimately, we'll learn that as exiles, we're not without hope. Right? We're not abandoned. We're not victims but rather we've been divinely positioned by God to be intentionally set apart from the world so that we can effectively be lights of Christ in the darkness. As David Kinneman, president of Barna Research Group, recently wrote, based on his conclusions from recent data concerning Christians living out their faith in this post-Christian digital age, he writes, Exiles who remain faithful to their true home, are important during times when society undergoes fundamental change, especially when the broader social stresses to conform reach a fever pitch. They play a critical role in reminding us how to stay 
on the path of faithfulness. This is the story of Daniel. This is the story of Daniel, and in in many ways, it's currently our story as well. Exiles who are called to remain faithful to their strange home, or to to their true home in a strange land. So please turn with me now to Daniel 1. We're going to be reading from 1 to 7. But this morning, we'll only be making it through verse 1 and 2. There's so much to talk about. We delayed this uh, series by a month, so that means I had another month of more research. So I, I'm filled with information here. So I, to, I, I cut a lot out. Um, so we're saving it. So Daniel 1, 1 to 7, but we're only going to be studying verses 1 and 2 this morning. All right, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judaites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He named them Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. All right. So this morning, uh, for the rest of the message, my goal is to lay the groundwork for our series so that we have a foundation to build on. So, so what we're going to do for the rest of the day is basically this is this is turning into this is going to turn into a kind of a history class. Uh, we're going to discuss the historical and biblical context of the book of Daniel, what's happening, where it's happening, and even a, a brief overview of why it's happening. Because context helps us understand the intended purpose of the book so that we can, in turn, better apply it to our lives. So we need to know what's going on. And, uh, of course, I should mention that many of the themes that, that uh, we'll discuss or that I've already mentioned briefly today, we're going to be expanding upon those and explaining those in more detail as the series goes on. So if there's things that you're like, I don't get that, I wish you would have talked about that more, I, don't, I disagree with that, blah, 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 whatever, don't worry, we're going to be explaining those things in more detail uh, as, we, as we go through the series. So today's just an overview. So first of all, I want to point out that the book of Daniel is a unique book because it's part narrative, so it's telling the story of Daniel and his friends, right? But it's also partly a prophetic and apocalyptic uh, in its literary style, as it points to the future and even to events of the end of days. In fact, the book of Revelation uses a lot of the same imagery. And if you understand Daniel, you'll better understand Revelation and, and vice versa. Um, so it's apocalyptic in nature as well. So on that end, it's, it's kind of a neat book in that it has the ability to both draw the reader to look back into the past, to, to remember what God has done, 
but also to look forward with the hope of what God's going to do in the future, all for the purposes of understanding how we're to live obediently and hopefully in the present. So saying, look, look back and remember, look forward and hope so that you know how to live today. That's what the book of Daniel does for us, and, and it's pretty cool that way. Um, the book of Daniel is also a reminder for us that most of the Bible, like Daniel, is written from a place or position of exile and was most likely recorded for the purpose of encouraging Jews in the midst of their own exile. Um, the story of exiles, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, it's we're, we're God's people waiting for the promised land, right? That's the story of the whole Bible, the whole narrative. So, um, and in the same way, just like most of the Bible's narrative as well, the backdrop of Daniel takes place in the midst of the rise and fall of kingdoms and empires. In fact, the beginning of the Babylonian exile is one of those moments. And on that end, one could argue that the theme of Daniel is actually about kingdoms. And theologian Paul R. House does just that when he writes, Daniel is a story of kingdoms, human kingdoms that rise and fall, and God's kingdom, which rises and remains. Within this story, Daniel and his friends persevere in their witness through his power. So with all that in mind, let's dig into the first two verses of Daniel to get a more specific context of what's going on in the story. And verse 1 actually gives us the historical and political context of the story. And then verse 2 actually gives us the spiritual and biblical context of the story. So let's start like the book does in verse 1. Let's figure out what's going on at that time. So Daniel 1.1 says, again, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. I don't know about you, but usually when I read these types of verses, I kind of like the sail right over them to get to the good stuff, get to the lion's den, right? Get to the fiery furnace. Um, but, there, but this verse is actually saying a lot. Right off the bat, we're told that the empire of Babylon is laying siege to Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the southern Israeli province of Judah. And then we're also introduced to a couple of characters. I have to remember them. Jehoiakim. You have to say Jehoiakim because they're Jewish. Uh, I'm probably saying it wrong, but uh, it's worth trying anyways. King Jehoiakim of Judah and then King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. They, right, we're introduced to those two characters. And what's interesting and notable here, again, is that the author is actually saying more than we realize. Just by mentioning this event and those two names, they're saying a lot. And so we're going to try to discover what that is. It's it's actually meant to, to conjure up for the reader all the backstory, all the prophecies, all the history that has already been recorded in their scriptures and in other books of history, uh, most notably in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, as well as in the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, who all prophesied that these events would take place. Um, unlike the original readers of this text, though, we're not as familiar with the events that were going on, and we didn't live through them, or you know, our ancestors didn't live through them. And so we're going to do our best to jump into this specific place and time in history. So we're going to attempt to do that. All right, as it says, it's in the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah when this story begins, when the exile begins. And this would most likely be in the year 605 B.C., which is in the Iron Age, 2,600 years ago when this is happening. 
And as mentioned, as I mentioned, this is during a time of international turmoil and, and political transition for most of the countries in the region. And this is because only a few years earlier, the Assyrian Empire, Assyrian Empire, who had ruled for over 15 centuries as the most powerful empire in the known world, was finally overthrown and defeated by King Nabopolassar of Babylon and his allies, the Medes, after about a 20-year rebellion that went on. The king of Assyria died, and then they rebelled against Assyria and used that moment of weakness to overthrow them. Before this, Babylon had only been a prominent city and a vassal state of the empire of Assyria. And I have a couple maps for you. John, if you want to, I want to thank John. I gave him so much stuff today, and he's throwing it all in there, doing, being a good sport about that. So, um, yeah, so this is the Assyrian Empire. So you see it goes all the way into Egypt. It's, it's pretty huge in the Mesopotamia region there. So that's Assyria. You can just see how huge it is and how much control they had. And you can see the little yellow Judah there. They didn't, they didn't have control over Judah because King Zechariah, which I'll talk about later, was faithful to God. So they didn't have control over Judah, which they were annoyed about. Anyways, uh, if you want to go to the next map, the Babylonians and the Medes took over. So you see the Median Empire took the top half and the Babylonians took the bottom. Um, Egypt is still on its own. They didn't get that part, which we'll talk about as well. So you can see that's the Babylonian Empire um, at the time of the story of Daniel. So that little red line is the journey of exile to Babylon. So you can see where Babylon is on the right in relation to Jerusalem on the left there. So now you guys kind of have a visual of that so you know that these aren't just like random names and places that we're talking about, but, but uh, real places, real events. And uh, anyways, back to the story. So after the death of his father, King Nebuchadnezzar, in 605 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar became king of this new world empire. So this is a, a new empire. King, and, and Nebuchadnezzar was, was the one leading the rebellion. He dies. King Nebuchadnezzar gets to take it over, like, immediately. Um, so he's fresh. He's a new king. He doesn't know what he's doing. But, and he's also left with the task of, of quelling any possibility of an Assyrian counter-rebellion, as well as given the challenge of pushing out any ling- lingering Assyrian allies within the regions that they control. Okay, so this is all military stuff, right? They don't want to be taken over again, right? So they want to push everybody out and make sure they control everything. And this is why one of his first acts of, as king was to besiege Jerusalem. Even though the nation of Judah was actually a long-standing ally of Babylon. So, We have to ask, why would they besiege an ally nation? And to understand this part of the story, we have to back up four years to 609 B.C. So hopefully you guys are following along. Um, So during the rebellion, the Babylonian rebellion, one of the Assyrian allies was the nation of Egypt, as we saw on that map. And in 609 B.C., Egypt's army had marched up north towards Syria to help them fight the Babylonians and to wage war against them. But in order to get where they were going, they had to come through the Israeli province of Judah. 
The current king of Judah at the time was King Josiah. Unlike most of the kings after David, Josiah was actually faithful to God during his reign. Unlike his great-grandfather, King Manasseh, whose sinful disobedience is what primarily got them into this mess to begin with. I'm going to talk about that later. Um, but So due to this long-standing alliance that they had with Babylon, King Josiah then felt obligated to stand against Egypt's forces and deny them passage through the region. Therefore, when Egypt's armies, led by Pharaoh Necho II, entered the region at a place called Megiddo, everyone say Megiddo, because it's fun to say, Megiddo. Say it one more time, Megiddo. Uh, they found themselves <laughs> facing the military force of Judah. So, you know, the Egypt's armies comes over the hill and Judah's army standing there waiting for them, saying, you're not, you're not coming through. You're not passing. You shall not pass. <laughs> and uh, King Nico II is like, hey, Josiah, this isn't your fight. Let us, let us through. And Josiah is like, no, can't do it. Not going to do it. And so at that point, the battle of Megiddo takes place, and Judah loses horribly. They get wiped out. King Josiah also gets killed in the battle. And so this battle and Egypt's victory is actually recorded in, in many sources by the Egyptians, by the historian Josephus, and of course, in a couple of places in the Bible, like in 2 Kings 23, 29 to 30, which I'll just read for you. So during his reign, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, marched up to help the king of Assyria at the Euphrates River. King Josiah went to confront him, and at Megiddo, when Necho saw him, he killed him. From Megiddo, his servants carried his dead body in a chariot, brought him into Jerusalem, and buried him in his own tomb. Then this part, next part's important. Then the common people took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, that's Josiah's oldest son, anointed him and made him king in place of his father. So that makes sense. They're like, okay, take his oldest son, make him king. But the victorious Egyptians, however, they weren't happy about Jehoahaz being the king. And since they were now in control of the territory of Judah, they removed him from the throne after only three months. I mean, he got to be king for three months. It's better than most of us, right? So he can't complain. He did get kidnapped and taken to Egypt, though, so that sucks. Um, but then, so, and then they made Jehoahaz's younger brother, Jehoiakim, the king instead. So they put his younger brother, Jehoiakim, on the throne. In other words, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, remember that? He was placed on the throne of Judah by the pharaoh so that he could be a puppet king for Egypt. This was around the year 602 BC by that time. So fast forward three years later, in or, and in order for the new king Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian armies to push Egypt out of their new uh, region, they had to besiege the nation of Judah precisely because it had become a puppet state for Egypt. So that's the political and historical reason why Jerusalem was besieged and why Judah then became a vassal nation of Babylon in the year 605 B.C. That one verse says all of those things. Lots of history. Is everyone following? Yeah? Okay. Good. Now, the challenge... There's more. The challenge uh, at this point for empires like Babylon is maintaining control of their vassal nations. 
right? We see that the Roman had to, Rome had to deal with that too when they controlled everything. Like, how, do, how do we keep these nations in line and keep them from rebelling? And so they implemented a lot of different things. So for Judah, to maintain control of Judah, they implemented three methods, as is mentioned in the passage we read. Number one, actually I don't know if this part's in the passage, but number one, they forced them, this part might be a second kicks, they forced them to pay taxes and tributes, which King Jehoiakim reluctantly agreed to do since they let him stay on the throne. And secondly, they implemented a method of colonization and assimilation in which a large portion of the people were taken out of their home country and into captivity, into Babylon, for the purpose of either slavery or to supply the workforce, or for re-education for the purpose of becoming culturally assimilated and then serving the king or even going back to their home country to assimilate their home country. Um, We see that Daniel and his friends are part of that category. Um, So that's what they did. And then thirdly, as our passage in Daniel did mention for sure, uh, significant holy and religious artifacts were also taken out of Jerusalem's temple, out of God's temple, and then placed in the religious or cultish temples of the gods of Babylon. And this was to represent Judah's defeat and the dominance of their gods over Judah's God and their nation over Judah, right? It was also a tangible method of of turning people's worship off of their own god and onto Babylon's gods. Does that make sense? So it's also kind of a method of uh, assimilation, religious assimilation. So that's what they did to control the nation of Judah And this is where we find ourselves in Daniel 1, the beginning of what is now known as the Babylonian exile, which included, again, Daniel and his three friends, thousands of other uh, Jews, as well as many holy artifacts from the temple being taken out of their home, being taken into Babylon. And I want to point out as well that there were a couple of other times in the years after this when Babylon comes back to Judah, besieges it again, and takes more people into exile, uh, mostly in retaliation to King Jehoiakim's uh, failed attempts of rebellion. He keeps trying to rebel against them. And and, um, at one point, they get really sick of him trying to rebel. And so they sack the city of Jerusalem and they destroy Solomon's temple, which is, this is in 587 BC. And then they take 10 to 20,000 Jews. It's hard to know how many. Uh, when they put numbers in the Bible, sometimes it's just the men, sometimes it's just the wealthy. We don't know who they're talking about. So it's approximately ten to 20,000 Jews, and they take them into Babylon and into captivity at that time. And so there's, there's a couple of exiles that happened, and that was a significant one. Um, if you want to throw the timeline up there, John, do you have the timeline? There it is. All right, so now we can get a kind of visual of the timeline. So 605 B.C., Babylon conquers Judah. That's at the tail end of the life of Jeremiah, by the way. Then Daniel, Babylonian exile, lasts, you can see that it lasts 70 years. Um, I should also note that, that while well, Daniel is, is writing from the perspective of exiles in the courts of the king and in the city of Babylon, Ezekiel is also alive at the same time, but he's a prophet for the people that are in slavery and in the workforce and stuff. So Ezekiel is around at the same time. He actually mentions Daniel in his book as well. So we see that there's um, 
more exiles the last 70 years, and um, then the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persians, they fall, whatever, all that stuff happens. And then it leads into the events of, of uh, Ezra with the rebuilding of the temple, and, and uh, Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the wall, and the events of Esther who ends up saving her people from being wiped out and uh, in genocide. So we see that this whole story taking place here. And uh, I should also note that Daniel actually lives longer, his life lasts longer than, than the empire of Babylon itself. He lives, he lives longer. He sees the beginning of the Babylonian empire, and he sees the end of it um, as it's taken over by, like we're talking about, rise and fall of empires. That's in the midst of Daniel's life. Unfortunately, he never gets to return back to his home in Jerusalem. As it says in Daniel 121, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he's there until the Persians take over and control the empire. All right, kind of a cool side story to this, uh, this kind of idea. In 1999, so like I, I love this stuff. I should have been an archaeologist or a historian or something. So hopefully I'm not making you guys fall asleep. But in 1999, some archaeologists discovered about 200 ancient clay tablets from the 6th and 5th century that were written by Judeans during their time in exile in Babylon. Uh, most of the tablets, do you have them up there? Yeah, there, there we are. Most of the tablets, uh, which are being called the Al-Yuhada tablets, or Yehudu, Yahudu tablets or something, uh, based on where they're found. They're financial and they're economic in nature, but, but they still give us unique insight as to the state of Jews uh, during that time. You know, some were slaves. Some actually worked um, normal jobs. Um, and, and, and their names, you can tell by the, by the... Like, names are important to them back then, right? And some of their names actually meant longing for home and stuff like that. So you see that they're, they're longing to go home, that they don't want to be there. And uh, so that's, that's cool. Anyways, that's just a kind of a cool side story there, but, but a unique reminder that these aren't just Sunday school stories, right? Th- these are real people and real events that took place at a real moment in history in a real place called Babylon. And since we're on the subject, let's talk about Babylon. Because in the narrative of the whole Bible... Babylon is represented as more than just a city, but it becomes a metaphor or archetype that represents uh, an empire or kingdom or a culture that's set up in opposition to God. Of course, the city of Babylon itself finds its origins in the, the, the Tower of Babel, a city being built in opposition to God. And in the story of, of Daniel, Babylon is, is a literal real city that stands in opposition to God. And God teaches them that no matter how much they try, they can't throughout the story of Daniel, but that's, that's, where the, that's their setup, right? They're set up in opposition to God. They take stuff from the temple, put it in their own God's temple, right? They, they think they're better than God. And um, I just want to make sure that we realize that this is a real place. So just for reference, its location, Babylon's location is about 85 five kilometers south of where Baghdad is right now in Iraq. Saddam Hussein actually had a summer home looking out into the ruins of Babylon. So good for him. Uh, I have some, some pictures of Babylon if you want to show those, John. So that's a, that's a drawing 
of, of what Babylon would have looked like. So you can see that there's that spire there, remnant of, of a reminiscent or maybe a remnant of the Tower of Babel. And uh, as you can see that, it's a pretty great city with a wall around it and all that kind of stuff. And there's, there's the ruins themselves of Babylon, which have been uh, dug up recently and, and been working on and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool to see. This is where Daniel and his friends lived. This is where they walked. Um, and that is one of the Babylonian gods, uh, kind of a dog-looking thing, and its name is Marduk. I, I remember that because Marmaduke. Um, so maybe that's where the name is from. I don't know. Anyways, that's Marduk. So <laughs> there's some pictures. So you guys have a visual of that. So this is a real place, right? And, but while it was a real place, Again, it, it becomes, in Scripture, it becomes something of, uh, of a symbol or an archetype of what it represents. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter refers to Rome as Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, Babylon is used as the name to represent the satanic world empire, which sets itself up against Jesus and is subsequently destroyed and, and turned to ash because there's no room for Babylon in the New Jerusalem. As David Kinneman and Mark Matlock write, the Babylon of the Bible is characterized as a culture set against the purposes of God, a human society that glories in pride, power, prestige, and pleasure. Babylon makes appearances throughout the Bible, most notably and literally in the story of Daniel, but Babylon is there in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end, from the Tower of Babel, the first city of man in the book of Genesis, to the final act of God's justice and restoration and revelation. Babylon is both a place and an archetype of collective human pursuits set in opposition to God. Oh, excuse me. So this is precisely why this idea of, of Babylon is so relatable to us today. Right? Because while we don't live in a literal Babylon, we do live in a spiritual or digital Babylon a post-Christian culture that's becoming increasingly opposed to God, a culture of pride that seeks power, prestige, and pleasure, that seeks to conform and assimilate or distract us from being who we're called to be in Christ. And we'll dive deeper into this idea next week. But for now, as Kinnaman and Matlock again write, ancient Babylon was the pagan but spiritual, hyper-stimulated, multicultural, imperial crossroads that became the unwilling home of Judean exiles, including the prophet Daniel in the 6th century BCE. But digital Babylon is not a physical place. It is the pagan but spiritual, hyper-stimulated, multicultural, imperial crossroads that is the virtue home of every person with Wi-Fi, a data plan, or for most of us, both. And so we, we have this digital connection to, this, to the culture of Babylon that we live in today. And so as we, we find ourselves in this type of Babylon, we have to ask as Christians, what then is the solution for, for influencing, for persevering through, and even subverting the culture of Babylon for God's purposes? And the answer to that question is to be exiles. I know that's not the answer you want to hear. You probably want to hear, hear an easier way. You want to hear that the answer is to become relevant to the culture, to become more like the world so that we fit in. But no, the solution and the call for us is to be exiles, to be holy, 
morally and spiritually set apart in Christ. Not to look down on the world or to judge the world, but to look different than the world. This is God's plan and calling for his people to be in the world, but not of it. Historically, we, we also know that the gospel spreads the fastest and grows the most in places where Christians are not welcome. Look what's happening in China right now. This has been true since the early church. This is God's design. Daniel 1 verse 2 says that the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of, of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. He handed it over to them. In other words, this is God's will for them. He not only let it happen, he gave them over. And so, first of all, for God's people, Babylon was definitely a place of consequence for their sinful disobedience, which stemmed from the actions of many disobedient kings. But more specifically, as the prophets proclaim, this is definitely discipline for the sinful actions of King Zechariah's son, King Manasseh his sinful actions of leading people into idol worship and, and pagan sacrifices and so on, uh, when he was king, was so abhorrent to God that he proclaimed judgment on all of Judah because of it, and all of Judah was part of it. And this judgment came in the form of exile. And therefore, God used King Nebuchadnezzar and the political stuff that was happening in that day to exact this judgment against them. As it says, God gave King Jehoiakim to him. And you might think, well, all that political stuff was happening, that has nothing to do with God, it would have happened anyway. Not true. Could God have prevented this from happening? Absolutely. Yes. Because he's done it before. Most notably during King Zechariah's reign, only a couple generations earlier, when the Assyrians tried to besiege Jerusalem. They had 800,000 troops, and King Zechariah decided to remove all pagan sacrifice, all idols from the nation, and to trust in God alone. And God protected them. But Manasseh, he never repented. He did what was evil. He pushed God out of the picture, and in doing so, opened them up to exile. So Babylon was definitely meant to be a place of discipline for God's people until they repented and turned back to him. And that's, you know, one of the things that happens in exile. It forces us to remember that we are weak vessels <laughs> and that we need God. It reminds us that we need God. But beyond that, it, it seems like it was actually God's sovereign plan to use this moment of exile for his purpose as well and to advance his name as well. Again, in verse 2, it says that this was the Lord's doing. But the author of Daniel isn't complaining. You know, when we get into a trial, we're like, oh, God did this to me. That's not, that's not um, the tone that's written here. Um, rather, he's recognizing the sovereignty of God. He's recognizing that the judgment for their sin is just. He's, he's acknowledging their moment in history, saying this is, this is where we're at, right? Um, but at the same time, and even more importantly, he's, the author is actually displaying his confidence in the fact that God is faithful to his word that he did what he said he would do. And that even in judgment, the Lord's sovereign hand is on this moment in time. And as such, that he'll remain faithful and work out his will in the midst of it, which we see that he does, right? And so with this mindset, 
Daniel and his friends continually place their trust in the Lord at each and every moment, especially when their own faith and obedience to God is tested or under pressure to compromise or conform. And, and in doing so, in, in remaining faithful, God blesses them, and they actually end up influencing and proving the glory of God to the most powerful kings in the known world, just because they decided to remain faithful. And so this is a reminder for us that as exiles in a secular and sinful world, we're not victims. We're not in a place of surrender. We're not in a place of retreat. Rather, through Jesus, we're citizens of a kingdom that will never end. And as exiles awaiting that kingdom... We're actually in a position right now to be lights in the darkness, to be beacons of hope in a world that's becoming hopeless, to be a remnant of holiness in a world of sin, to be ambassadors of Christ to ambassadors of Christ to a world desperately in need of the loving mercy and saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're here as exiles in this moment of history, in this time of place, for a purpose. Or as it says in Esther. For such a time as this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, like Daniel does in verses 1 and 2, we recognize your holiness, your sovereignty, your will. And that it's perfect and that it's good and that it's just and that it's righteous. Lord, I thank you for the place that you have us in right now. I thank you for the calling in which you've called us through Jesus Christ to live set apart from the world, even as we live in the world, Lord. And I pray that as we we study through Daniel, as we study through your word, Lord, we would learn what that looks like, what that means to be exiles. And how as exiles we can live faithfully for you. That we can be resilient. That we can be be that remnant of holiness. That light in the darkness that you've called us as your church to be, Lord. And we acknowledge that we need you in it. And so we look to you. We surrender to you. We humbly cry out to you. We long. We groan for you, Lord to mold us, to change us, to draw us into your presence, to use us for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.